Marzi, I got to ask you, I was thinking about this whole Memorial Cup being canceled. What do you think Roger Hunt thinks of the Phil Tomasino trade right now? Boy, oh boy. Why do you got to put salt in the wound? I was feeling bad enough and I'm totally wearing my OHL hat here. Okay. So no disrespect intended to the rest of the Canadian Hockey League, but there were some, and I might've been among them with my OHL bias that thought Mm -hmm. Oshawa got a bit of a raw deal a couple of years back when the tournament went to Regina for the hundredth anniversary, there there was some rationale there, make no mistake about it, but I thought there was rationale for Oshawa to host back then too. And this year, no disrespect intended to the Sioux, but it looked like it was Oshawa's Mm -hmm. tournament to lose. And as you just mentioned, you add, Oh boy, a whole heap and helping assault into that wound when it gets canceled again. And not only does the Phil Tomasino trade go by the wayside, but so too does the opportunity to play host this year. What I, a year. Yeah. Phil Tomasino played 26 games for the Oshawa Generals. And don't get me wrong, a hell of a 26 games, 43 points as a gen. But they also gave up a young defenseman and nine draft picks, six of them second rounders. That is a steep price to pay for 26 games of Phil Tomasino. And given he's over a point a game in the American Hockey League right now, I don't think he's coming back anytime soon. Well, I don't think even the if OHL, they have a season. Yeah, I'm even, just saying, that's, even the most optimistic at the OHL are saying they're still trying to figure out a way to have some sort of season before the NHL draft in late July. I, I don't even want to go down that road, but it's Do the funny. Burks call Roger Hunt and just say, Hey, we feel really bad. No, really? You we think that's feel gonna... really bad. <laughs> they feel bad about other things. Unless you've forgotten about that $250,000 sanction. Hey, oh, <laughs> we feel really bad about that too. Can we claw back some of that money? Yeah. Or the I trades was... that were trades and weren't trades. And then they were trades and players were told, but then they didn't leave town. Anyway, that's a fun city. Um, I was I just feeling feel bad. Crazy. I was feeling bad for Ottawa all this time because of course they had a great run that fell short and then they were, they were loaded for bear in the season that wasn't uh, the, the 2020 season that ended prematurely when the pandemic first began. But you take that now and, and your point on Oshawa is great, but you take this now and, and look even bigger picture. This is two consecutive years, Popper, that Canada's national junior hockey championship has been canceled by COVID-19 that is a big freaking deal I don't think it is on the big scale of things if I'm oh my gosh everything's been canceled really how many NBA championships how many Stanley Cups how many World Series sport those are major sporting events but the only difference the only difference Chris is the financial aspect of it that's why the pros could continue doing it but this is a this is a championship we just mentioned Regina with a more than 100 year history it is the national junior hockey showcase outside of the world junior tournament at Christmas when everybody's a junior hockey fan for two weeks this is a big hairy deal I'm with you but we didn't have a USHL championship last year I don't think either and that's they're on the same levels here we're talking pro versus amateur and on the big scale of things 
I know it like you and I, the Memorial Cup is the Memorial Cup. It's the bread and butter. I, we love that time of year. But on the big scale of things, I don't know. I'm just on, on a bigger note. I'm more upset that the last one was canceled because I think the Rangers made some moves that they could have pushed to go to Kelowna. And I really wanted to go to Kelowna. Uh, you That's know all. what? I, I'm not going to lie. I may have even mentioned to the family, hey, it's possible in yeah. May we might spend a couple of weeks in British Columbia in beautiful Kelowna. I know you've been out that way before. I've been out that way before. And uh, yeah, it would have been nice. Heck, the following year in Halifax would have been nice. Can we please just get back to playing junior hockey and you and I get back to broadcasting games with the hopes that when the Memorial Cup rolls around, we get a chance to participate in some way, shape or form. Because not only is it fun, but they've been having it in some pretty good places lately. I just hope I get the chance to go to one. I've never been to one. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I know. Well, I'll tell you what. Next time it's in Ontario, no matter who's involved in it, we're going to make sure we drag you okay. to a Memorial Cup. No matter if, if, Even if that's in the Sioux, we're going to drag you up to the Sioux. It's better in May than it is in February. Trust me. I'll go to the Sioux anytime. Yeah, um, up there. Speaking of Oshawa and the Sioux and Memorial Cups, count them one, two, three, four, five, six appearances in a Memorial Cup for our guest this week. Oh, I like it. Well done. Uh, how many of those ended up successful? We'll get into that real quick. Somebody, was that a sign just for the online uh, video so, viewers? Exactly. Okay. Thanks we'll for watching there. on YouTube. Make sure exactly. to follow us on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL and at underscore Chris Pope. Get in contact with us on Instagram, OHL stories. And you can always email us farwellandpope at gmail.com. Leave a rating, subscribe, do, do things that we know that you either like or don't like what yeah. we do. And when you're using that email, farwellandpope at gmail.com, if you've got a former player or somebody associated with the OHL that you want to hear from on this podcast, well, let us know. We'll round them up and bring them on. Absolutely. We're always looking for uh, new names and I'm just stalling here because I want to pull up the message. I sent a text before interviewing our guest this week and I said, Hey, we're getting Sherry Basson on the podcast. Anything I should ask him? And this person told me, you're giving Bass a live mic? I hope you cleared your calendar for the day. Yeah, we asked one question. And uh, <laughs> what you're about to hear in the next two hours is the answer to that. No, listen, few tell stories. Few have as many stories and few tell them as well as Mr. Sherwood Basson. He said in the podcast, there are two things I like to do, walk and talk. <laughs> and he proved it over the course of the next Two hours, 36 years linked to the Ontario Hockey League, a general manager, a head coach, and an owner. Again, five OHL championships, six trips to the Memorial Cup. We'll find out how many he won. He passed on Wayne Gretzky. He drafted. Don't give that away. He drafted Connor McDavid. He traded Eric Lindros and was instrumental in the first World Junior Hockey Championship for Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, he needs no introduction, but he just got one. I know, but hang on. I wanted to add just, I want to throw in one more thing before we get to our guest. We promise to be quick because there's a lot of sherry coming up. But have you noticed that Kyle Dubas, the former general manager of the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds, is just bringing in all the OHL talent to try to help the Maple Leafs win a Stanley Cup? Just thought I'd point that out to you. Okay. The article I read said, oh, the acquisition of of, uh, Nick Foligno joins the likes of 
off-season acquisitions like Wayne Simmons and Joe Thornton and TJ Brody. I'm like, OHLer, 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 joining Mitch Marner and, and Jason Spezza and John Tavares and Jack Campbell and Travis Dermott and Alex Galchenyuk and keep going through that Leafs lineup. More OHLers than any other NHL team. Does it pay off? I'm curious to see. Okay, that's it. it- Sherry Bassin was already growing facial hair by the time Joe Thornton was born. So that tells you how long Sherry's been around the game. Sherry Bassin. You know, Sherry, your name is synonymous with the Ontario Hockey League. Decades in the game, Memorial Cups. And one of the things I, I needed to ask before we get too deep into it is how a guy like you with all these degrees, you got all these letters behind your name from the degrees you earned in school. How do you end up behind a bench in the first place, Sherry? Well, that's a good story. I I came from out west and I went to work for the legal division of food and drug. So I called up minor hockey because I had some success coaching kids up in the west. I had no idea they picked their teams in the spring. And so I got here October the 9th to work on October the 10th. I called them up and they thought like, this guy's got to go for a brain study. What's he doing calling about, you know? So anyway, I didn't do anything about it. Then I coached some minor hockey and I was success. I got in next year. I got asked and I won a Bantam championship. Then I won a all Ontario midget championship. And then I got in junior B and won some one there. And the Oshawa generals are favored that particular year that I'm coaching junior B for Pickering Panthers to win the OH. At the OHL. And they get beat out in the first round. And they have 16 last year players. Okay. So, you know, I mean, I read about it because I'm living and I'm out here and stuff. And, and all of a sudden, John Humphreys, the owner of the Oshawa Generals, shows up at the university and the college to meet me. No prior appointment. Didn't set anything up. And I don't know if you guys know me as much as I look like. My office is the messiest office you've ever seen in your life. I'd have piles of paper everywhere and stuff. Papers that I had people. And at that time, I was also designing the paralegal program for the province of Ontario. So I didn't want to interview him in my office. He'd look at this office and say, the heck am I doing with this guy? But the associate dean was a neat freak. So I asked if I could use his office. So in the dean's office, we have a two or two or three hour meeting. John just gets up and leaves. He said, I'll let you know in a short while. Two weeks later, he calls me. He said, I'd like you to coach Josh for generals. And because I had a pretty good reputation at the school and I coached some national programs to the chartered accountants and stuff in law, and they did very, very well. So they they presented a schedule for me so that I could coach the generals. So now I got to tell you this. So, so I'm all, I think I'm the Scotty woman of coaching. <laughs> that all, you know, I'm thinking, hey, you know, I've all, I've won everywhere, you know what I mean? So I take over the Osho generals. And I'm going through training camp. We had a long training camp and stuff like that exhibition. Roger Nielsen just left that year to go to the Central League or American League. 
And I got to know him very well from before. And he said, he came to me, he said, listen, you're not going to have a very good team. But you got a good work ethic, just keep at it. You know, thanks, Roger. Now we play an exhibition game against the Marlies, George Armstrong, who I'd love to tell stories more about that, but he just a wonder. Him and I became very good friends. And I used to look after his mother when he'd come to scout and stuff like that. Put them in a... So anyway, after the game, and they don't have like 12 of their best players. Remember in those days, before you went to the draft, here's an interesting point for you, Chris. You could protect eight players in your own community before you went to the draft, which I changed, by the way, because I was with the idea was to keep your well, Toronto can protect the best eight players in Toronto before you go to the so they had powerhouse teams. And then they'd end up if Kitchener had a superstar or something like that, they'd end up giving you five pretty good players for them. So it perpetuated. Because when I was going to draft Steve Conroy, they said no. Uh, Toronto might protect him. I said, what do you mean protect him? But anyway, I don't want to digress here. So George takes me after the game, and he sits out 12 or 14 of his best players. We got our whole team dressed. Takes me after the game comes to see me. Takes me under the balls of the rink and said, son, Jesus Christ couldn't get your team to win. Really? I'm thinking I'm this coach. I'm one of the first guys now that's got the board out of the ice, all this sort of stuff. So now about an hour and a half after the game, and you'll, you'll enjoy this, I'm out going to my car. A guy by the name of Frank J., who Roger Nielsen said the best judge of talent he'd ever met, who I got sitting on his yellow gremlin, smoking a cigarette, looks at me, and he said, hey, you don't know how bad your team is. See, oh yeah? He said, you, you won't win 10 games. And if you do, you should be coach of the year. I, so I said to him, to show you how, I said, Frank, are you crazy? I can take five guys out of the funeral home and I'll win 10 games. <laughs> Guess what? We won five and tied five. That was and here's how I ended up getting where it was, which is a good continuation. John Humphreys had talked to me two or three or four times during the year. He'd get a little, you know, get some rum and soda in him and at a party and say, I want you to do both. And I said, John, you can't do both. Kilray does both, but he's got a heck of a staff there. Anybody in Kitchener that's doing that, those guys got good surrounding staff and you don't have a but You can't do both. We'll get killed. There's too much to do. So he, he approaches me again. I said, no, at the end of the year, he jumps over the deal. The very last game, we're walking around the rink. We step into a broom closet at the rink. And he said, you're fired as coach. And I go, you, because I told him, don't trade for anybody. Let the people blame me. Don't give up draft choices. You know, all this sort of stuff. And I'm giving it to him. And he said, shut up. He told me you can't do both. I'm going to make you general manager and governor, and we're going to hire a coach. And I looked at him because I thought I was this coach I wanted. I said, I'm going to try it for two years. If I don't like it, I'm going to go coach another team 
and come in here and run the score up. That two years ended up being 40 years. So that's, uh, for you guys, that's the, how I got started. Wow. <laughs> uh, what, what, what do you remember about that first year as general manager after you were fired? Well, as head that's coach? story too. That's another story. So I'm this new young general manager that takes over and stuff like that. And like, we had such a bad team. We had an inner squad game and lost. <laughs> so like, you know, so I was kidding the guys. He said, yeah, you got a lot of players back. I said, I hope some of the players can't find the rink. <laughs> so, that, but anyway, we take over and that's when it used to be a full midget draft guys. Should be a full midget draft, 16 year olds. And you were allowed one minor midget. And you had to take him in the top three rounds. So, you know, we know about Gretzky and stuff like that. We saw him play, we called up for three games with Peterborough Pete's. We're all there to watch that and stuff like that. As soon as Dick Todd started telling me, oh, you know, he's weak and he's pretty skinny. And you know, right away, I knew he was a good player. <laughs> So, so anyway, long story short, I'm coming home, and there's big rumors that Wayne Gretzky's only going to play one year a junior and go to the WHA. And I remember listening to people like you guys discussing, and, and people were talking about the WHA was trying to make a name for themselves. Said, God, we got such a bad team here. He's a minor midget. That means we can't get a minor midget. So we get everybody, and Frank, Frank really liked Tom McCarthy. And uh, the minor midget we took, I'll think of it in a minute, I know his name so well, um, who was playing for Burlington Junior B in those days, midgets and stuff played. And nobody, they had, they had escaped from the Russian domination of Czechoslovakia, left everything and came here. Rick Lance. The lenses. And Frank really liked him as a minor. So I said, what do you think if we don't take Gretzky? And uh, we didn't say this to anybody. And Frank was up for it. He, he said, hey, we can get McCarthy and especially with what's going on. So now we that's when we used to have the draft with like five. Thought with, they had it in Kitchener. The, the arena was jammed. Phil. So this one was in Toronto. It's all packed. And everybody here in Oshawa, they're writing in the papers and on TV and radio about how we're going to get Gretzky. And uh, I called the owner. I said, how do you feel if we don't draft Gretzky? Because when I took over, when he asked me, what do you want me to do? I said, the owner, I said, I want you to own. you be the best owner. If you want to manage then you should name yourself as manager. So I called him up. I said, what do you think if we don't take Gretzky? He said, you're the hockey guy. You told me to own. How many owners, as you know, in today's, whatever, say that. So many. I go to the front, mics, everybody, all the press are out front, you know, for that first pick. And, uh, I say the Oshawa Jenners are proud to select 
from North York, Tom McCarthy. I want you guys to know, because I know you guys, there's a good thing there was gun control, because they wanted me <laughs> shot. They wanted me shot. You have no idea, like, they're just, um, you hear the people, I call them the great mumblers of the world. But at that time, I was younger and said, hey, this is what we had decided. And, uh, oh, the Oshawa Times, it doesn't exist now, did an editorial on the front page, not the sports page, about denying them after the way they suffered the opportunity to watch Gretzky play. And the press were all over me. I mean, you had to hear it. Then we take Rick Lance's or Meyer Mitchell. But, I mean, it's, you had to know it. The phone, guys would say, if I see him on the street, I'm going to beat him up and, and my wife was concerned about our kids at school and stuff. Like there was high emotion. But here's the top of the off. Our opening game is in the suit. We get beat six one. Gretzky gets three goals three assists. <laughs> Let me talk. I'm thinking. And they're waving me at the old rink to come up those steps to be interviewed my radio station. And I'll never forget this. I'll take this to my grave. The first thing our announcer says to me, what do you think of Gretzky's game? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and we lost 6-1, remember? And you guys know me. But I looked at him and said, you know, I'd have been really impressed if he'd have got seven points then. <laughs> The announcer didn't really catch it like you guys, but no, <laughs> they only scored six goals. Oh, okay. So that was my introduction. But that team, I don't know if the record's ever been broken. I mean, we took a lot of heat. That team went from last place to third overall the next year. I think we made a 54 or 56 point jump and stayed pretty competitive for all the years and went to a few Memorial Cups and stuff but I'll tell you what and the last part of the story I'm sure your people would be interested we're playing them at home a week or two later we're ahead 4-3 and our old rink would hold 4,000 just jammed us in with 30 some seconds Gretzky's parked in his office behind the net sets up the tying goal and of the 4,000 people there 3,900 turned and pointed at me even though McCarthy got a hat trick in that game. So that was my introduction as a manager, you guys. So you, you give Tom McCarthy a hell of a story. He's the guy that gets picked ahead of Gretzky. That's right. What about, what about Wayne? Did he ever say anything to you? Did you ever talk to him about that after? No, I told the story later, but he, whenever he'd see me, very respectful. His dad was so kind to me. He was very Mr. Bass, and Wayne would say, you know, because he ended up owning part of Belleville. Very respectful. And I told people, and you guys will be the first to record this. One of the things, imagine if I'd have, we'd have drafted Gretzky, I would have had Gretzky at my beginning and, and McDavid at the end. Two, two pretty good bookends. You know okay. what I mean? So that uh, they, uh, but we had a lot of success. And, uh, you know, from that standpoint, it would have been nice to be around two superstars like that near the beginning and end of your career. But 
McCarthy was a phenomenal player. Like he cost him for his troubles that he got into and he talks about them. I talked to Tom. Cost himself at least $30 million. He was 6'4", so smart, so good with the puck. I think he got 59 goals for us second year. Like he, and he, it's so sad about how he ruined his career. You talk to all the guys that played with him, said he's one of the smartest. And Lance, so we ended up instead of one year with Kretzky, we had two years with McCarthy. He was picked by Minnesota, eighth overall or sixth. And then Lance went to Vancouver. We had him for three years. So we ended up with five years. But the first year wasn't fun for Sherry Bass. <laughs> Sherry, so, you mentioned a name, and I think we just breezed over it, and we really maybe shouldn't have. But you said you've got some George Armstrong stories. I think we need to hear some of those. My God, this guy, he was such a good guy. He was so I got to tell you a story that he told me. Him and Dick Duff used to have training camp for six weeks. Okay. No money. George signed a 10-year contract for $100,000, $10,000 a year. Four Stanley Cup rings. Memorial Cup ring, Allen Cup ring, Calder Cup ring. Okay. So anyway, the boys asked him to go see Mr. Smite. Your listeners will like this. And uh, see if they can get some training camp money. So him and Dick Duff go in, they knock on the door, and he explains it. Mr. Smite, who's there? They open the door, just us. I wonder if we can see it. Yeah, Dick, come on in. What do you want? Those days, that's why unions and stuff to bring the balance. said, well, Mr. Smite, you know, we got (coughs) wives, and we got to do laundry. We're looking for some training camp money. And they said, how much do you want, Mr. Smith? said, so we're looking for $20 a week. He said, I'll give you 12 <laughs> So the boys stand up. This is all you have to see George tell the story. Because I'm just so proud of my time that I spent with him. So it was cherished. He stands up and they go and, and Mr. Smith said, where are you going? He said, well, we're going to go discuss it with the boys. And Mr. Smith says, good idea. And tell him it's 12 or nothing. And George says to him, well, maybe we don't have to talk to them after all. <laughs> but George tells the best story. He got $6,000 in the signing bonus. This, uh, I can tell you too many of them, but this one. And $10,000 a year. Mr. Smith called him and said, what are you going to do with your money? So you're going to buy three lots in Sudbury and build some houses. Mr. Smythe said, are you crazy? Fall off the roof and ruin a $100,000 career? Give me your money, I'll invest. He bought Maple Leaf Garden stock. And 25 years or so ago, George sold it. God bless him, he's passed away 25 or 30. Sold it for a quarter of a million. And he said, this is a quote, if we can say it on the air. Hell with those guys, share. I signed for a quarter of a million too, he said. <laughs> oh, it's so, a great way to look at it. Yeah, this this game has brought me with those, you know, all those different people that I've had the chance to. There were special people in the in the game. Following the Oshawa Generals, Sherry, you had a a real nice run in Sault Ste. Marie, but you were in the Sioux when the Gens won that Memorial Cup 
1990. Your fingerprints, though, were all over that Generals team. You should have, if they didn't send you a ring, they probably should have. But that Memorial Cup also goes down in the history books as perhaps the best ever. What did you think of it? Well, first of all, there was a very, very good team at Kitchener. They won in overtime. I think, I think even the round robin game went to overtime. I'm not sure. I might be mistaken. Well, let me tell you a lot about that. Because I want to tell you about how the national junior team came into existence. I think you're how what happened. But anyway, I let John Humphreys offered me a lifetime contract. While I was a tenure, I was commissioner for a year. I'd been governor. I was manager of two gold medal teams in national junior hockey. I I mean, there were all kinds of things that I was involved in. I did the first contract junior hockey ever had with the NHL. So a lot of stuff that was going on. And I was just going to take a year off. John Humphreys is very mad at me. He offered me a lifetime. Cut. I said, John, of all these things, you know what I mean? And my family now are getting, you know, I got kids that are 10, 11, 12, 13 years old. And I got a, I just made this decision. I was going to take a year off and do some things. And then the Sioux were going to lose their team. A guy by the name of Esposito had him. We're selling it. I was going to move to Detroit. So they had a savior team thing. I went up to talk about it on television. And I made a remark in those days. If I ever managed the Vancouver Canucks, this is before all of this, cell phones and stuff. If I was managing the Vancouver Canucks, I would have had an office in Toronto. So anyway, I take over the suit. We're so bad. But anyway, I was at that Memorial Cup. 19 of the players, as you pointed out very well, I had something to do with. And I watched that team win it. And people came up to me and said, ah, before the game, you're pulling for Oshawa to lose. So I'm not pulling for Oshawa to lose. Like I was a big OHL guy too. I said, this is a great thing for the OHL, two HL teams in the finals. Well, of course I want them to win. And as you pointed out, they didn't. They, there's a lot, you know, 19 out of the 20 players. George Armstrong was the only one that I wasn't part of that they traded for that Frank did. So that was an exciting moment for me. I wanted that, like, you know, and won a game. Just like this last basketball game between Gonzaga and UCLA. And that hockey game that you mentioned, Mike, that hockey game, winning it in is the true definition, the true definition of the ecstasy of winning, okay, and the agony of losing. That game that the Generals won, I mean, you got, because Kitchener left it all on the ice. And just like I said that out about the basketball game, we just finished it in college basketball, not that, that hockey game was the true definition of the agony of losing and the ecstasy of winning. And the agony of defeat is we all is the term that they so uh, I go to the Sioux and it turned out to be a fluke because <clears throat> they sent me a ticket to fly in to interview me and I got to the airport and said this is stealing money. I'm not moving to the Sioux. And I called Jim McCauley who just recently passed away. And he said, get on that bloody airplane. 
And so they said, well, why can't you do it? Like you said, if you had the Vancouver Canucks. So I took over the suit and I put Air Canada on the ice. And they gave me 35 round trip tickets to fly to the suit. <laughs> it's part of the deal. And that's how I took over. And there's a story there too. There's a real story there. Because when I took over the suit, they wanted everybody fired. Newspaper had a headline, Clean Sleep. Clean Sleep. Radio was talking about Teddy and all was one of them. Wanted everybody fired. And I'm not that way. And I said, hey, we got to take a look at this team. That's another team. Couldn't beat the Sisters of Minerva. And they were back. And so I, um, I, and what happened was, Different people got parts of the team to own it. Like if you put up $10,000, you had to go with a group of 10 others. And for 100000 you could invest with one. So they were all talking clean sweep, and I didn't like it. I didn't like what was going on there. They, a whole bunch of people marched down the street with a petition, supposedly 10,000 names, but that was, could be exaggerated. And so I called a meeting with all the top people and said, at the hotel, I brought him in and I said, give me your definition of a good coach. Nobody said a word. He said, give me your definition of a bad coach. Nobody said a word. I said, let me give you my definition. Give him a, give him a good team. If he screws it up, you know he's not a good coach. So until we get a proper team here, Teddy Nolan's going nowhere. And I don't know how much was, a lot of people say racially inside. I don't, I have no evidence of that. But uh, I can tell you, and then we went on to three Memorial Cups three years in a row. So they, uh, and the one we lost out West, <laughs> the second, we beat him in the round robin, I think 6-2, Niedemeyer. We had a three or four on one with like 20 some seconds. Okay. Ralph Internuvo, if you remember in those days, anyway, he makes a pass. We miss it. Niedermeyer picks it up. Zach Boyer comes off the bench, the far end. Niedermeyer hits some tape to tape. He goes in, scores with 14.6 seconds to go. Not that I remember. <laughs> And they win the Memorial Cup. And then the, the owners come in to me after when everybody's crying and I'm in tears and says, don't worry, we'll win it next year. I wanted to smack it like next year after, you know. So as it turned out, we did. Being to the Memorial Cup, and you mentioned three straight years, what's, what's a greater feeling, that, that the winning or the agony of defeat that you talked about? Well, that's a really good question. You never forget the agony of defeat. Like when we lost the gold medal to the Russians in 86. or You remember, like, even though you try to get it out of there, you know what I mean? The ifs. You and I would be talking whenever, if you were there, all about the ifs and buts. I always used to say, if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, it would be a wonderful holiday season. You know? And so I never got into those I didn't like back pocket excuses or ifs and buts. But when you do win it, 
after you've gone through that agony. That's a good, it's a special moment, I'll tell you that, uh, you know, the, uh, so, you know, I've been lucky enough to be at the Memorial Cup six times and two teams that went. Like Mike said, I had my fingerprints on them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I mean, the point is that uh, they, uh, you don't forget either. Really. You know, you don't try, I don't try to dwell on it, but when you mention it, I can tell you where I was standing in the arena with 14.6 seconds. I can tell you when the, where the puck went in. And I can tell you the harpoon that went through my heart. So that's a good question. So I don't dwell on it, but when we talk about it, I can certainly remember it. <laughs> there, were, there were a few things you mentioned kind of just in passing, Sherry, that we need to get into a little more deeply. Uh, commissioner, the national junior team, part of that first gold medal team in 82. But I wanted to ask about, and then this contract, let's start there. The first ever contract between the OHL and the NHL. What did that look like? Why was it necessary? I got to tell you, you use it like this. So I mean, I'm the commissioner, interim commissioner we're looking for. So I automatically become a member of the Canadian Hockey League. And we all had stars. I had the, we had the McCarthy's at that time. Kitchener had, you know, you can go on and on. They were a key part of it. Like you get into the playoffs, if those guys lead you into the playoffs, it's a big part of your budget. So I, I'm at a meeting with the CHL meeting, wherever we are, and I said, like, what's the, what's the contract we have with the NHL here? Because I'm hearing rumors about McCarthy's going to go and you guys, you know. So I had, God bless him, Ed Chinook, who's passed away and did a lot for junior hockey. So we don't have a contract. We have a handshake. A handshake. You guys know my personnel. A handshake. <laughs> what happens if this guy passes away or something? And he, we don't have his hand anymore. Somebody else's hand. Well, don't worry. Don't worry about it. Are you kidding me? So I asked for a meeting with the NHL. I'll never forget this. And I called them up. And then I called Ed. They're going to give us a meeting in June. This is in the spring. Mr. Ziegler, who I have a lot of respect, is a very respectful man. In Montreal, we go in the night before we're talking about it. We're at Gibby's Steakhouse in Montreal that night before. We're having a big steak. And good. Thanks for that expense account. <laughs> and, uh, so anyway... I'm saying, listen, it's two o'clock. And I said, uh, this is pretty important. And I prepared some notes. So we go to the meeting. And they're very nice. The assistant vice president, you would know very well, Mike, just slipped my mind. He's from Montreal. Should sort of, uh, anyway, we make our presentation for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. The vice president says, we'd like to take, we're going to take this under advisement and meet about it. I think, take it under advisement. That means we're going to be discussing this for the next year or two. And I asked if I could speak. And if you know me, this is one of my most difficult moments because I like talking and walking. Peace. <laughs> so we're in this boardroom. Mr. Siegler's at the end. And they said, yeah. 
and I get up and speak for 15 minutes, that we're at those of us that are going to lose stars at 18, what it means to us financially. And I put the whole thing, and I remember Mr. Ziegler was twiddling his thumbs and listening intently at the end of the table. And I was walking up and said, and I proposed a specific budget. And if you got two rounds of the playoffs and what that does to you, budget. After 15 minutes, he looks at me and he said, how long will it take you to put that on paper? He said, we're having a, an owner's meeting in Toronto in first week of August. I said, I'll have it done. So I went to work and prepared this whole document. You know, and you're going to give it to owners, an explanation of what's going on, <clears throat> what this means to us, put in there about referee development, minor, all these kind of things. And structured a financial aspect of it. And so I said, and I was the big guy. If anybody in Kitchener is mad, mad at Dave Branch playing me because I was predominant in hiring him. So, um, so anyway, uh, uh, I had the document all done and finished, and we had our meetings the same time. CHL brought every owner in. And... Um, I presented it to all the owners. And they said, let's send it across the hall right now. <laughs> and there was some talk they should take it back. And I remember a Quebec owner and a Western owner stood up and said, no, 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 this does not go anywhere. This has been proofread and no sharing. <laughs> we got to present that to them. So we presented it to the owners. They voted on it. And that's the, then I did the, when that ran out in five years, I did the second one. And that's the groundwork for the what junior hockey has with the NHL today. And that's how it came about. And so to lead in here, so now Branch takes over. And uh, I We still can't to- get rid of him either, Sherry. He's still here. I don't like I think he's a permanent implant. I think even when he dies, they're going to put put somebody there. Just put it in. He's done a lot though. He's certainly done a lot for that league. I'll tell you what, he brought that league from its, you know, without question. He's been a phenomenal leader into where we are today. So anyway, you want to hear about the World Junior? Do you want me to talk about that now or do you want to wait? Yeah, I just want to, I'm wondering have you, well, how do I, how do I word this? I don't want to say you were smuggling but you were smuggling some things into Russia when you were part of that world junior team. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's another story here. I'm going to put that together. I'm glad you asked that. And getting out too wasn't easy. So you have to understand now in Russia and wherever Czechoslovakia, this is before they were divided into Slovakia, the Czech Republic, all ruled by Russia. Barbed wire fences, checkpoint charlies, machine guns and towers. Not to stop you and me from going in, to prevent their people from leaving. That's when I used to come back and lecture all over. Pretty good country that we live in. We have our faults, but democracy is the best of the rest. It might not be ideal at times, 
but it's the best of the rest. And so, and they were very strict rules for the Jews. I have to be Jewish. So I said, they only had one synagogue there. And uh, my dad immigrated from Russia, 1924. They killed his grand, my grandfather, his father, and they found out he was Jewish. He had five sisters and a mother, and he brought them. He immigrated, couldn't speak the language with five dollars in his pocket. Brought them all over when he got. So, I owed something. They had some relative store. So we wear a cap, the Jewish religion and stuff like that, and and prayer books. So I got them in all the hockey bags, and in my bags, because I didn't think they checked the hockey stuff. And full them in. Okay. And uh, we went in by train from uh, Finland. You had to see it when they stopped the train there and they get on your car. This guy's got a, a, a gun that he's pointing at me. He's got two guys beside him with rifles. He's an officer. Wants to go through all my stuff. Took all my, I told the guys to bring a lot of reading material. Took my Time magazines in those days and Newsweek and stuff. They didn't want the public to see it. Took that all away from me. But who's to say, like, the gun goes off? And it was an accident. <laughs> we get in there, too, and we couldn't, because it's an interesting story. And I had all this other stuff. So we, I used to, and I told our players, I was sick of hearing excuses when we travel. If we're delayed two hours, we're going to tell them we thought we would be delayed four hours. We're not complaining. We'll be no back pocket excuses. So, which was Leningrad at that time where we were going, which is now St. Petersburg. We get in there and I collect all the stuff and I find out about the one synagogue and I go to our host. And I said, hey, I don't want to take this, this cardboard box full of stuff. That's always said, sure, I can't take it. So I said, well, get me a cab and tell them where to take me. Cab wouldn't go there. Drop me off a block away. That's how they were concerned about being watched. And I carried it. Me, you know, and it was pretty heavy. I'd carry it away, set it down, brought it in. It was, they thought it was a KGB officer when I walked in the synagogue. When they saw what it was, yet, because there was like four to six people with one prayer book. So uh, so I told the story mainly because how lucky we are to live here with all its faults. And when you saw there that how the people, I mean, I could tell you, we could do a whole hour just on that. I could tell you stories about you know, being interviewed by the press here and, and uh, that, yeah, KGB brought, watched me about because my comments on CBC and, and, uh, so it was it was an amazing experience, and uh, and then we we got so suckered by the refs, and I I don't ever like to blame refs because that's a tough job, and I don't look for back pocket, but we're playing the Russians. It's one one. We're coming down the ice. We got a three on one, and a whistle goes but offside, and it wasn't offside. But this whistle goes, and we stop. They pick up the puck and go four on the goalie and score. 
and they count the goal. Because the whistle is from the stands, he said. And you guys know me well enough. I, <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't the guy to be around for quotes after. <laughs> so anyway, but it was a big deal. See, the refereeing there, to referee a world championship over there, it was a big deal. They didn't have the experience over like we had over here. So I don't want to demean them too much. What was it, Sherry, that that helped our national team gain the prominence that it has? You were there at the beginning. Yes, I was. That's a really good story that I think you'll enjoy. So the president of CHA said, Sherry, we're going to come up with this national concept. What do you think? I said, I'm ready for it. Oh, I'm so glad. He says, are you kidding me? The national team, absolutely. He said, we've got a lot of pushback on the junior teams when we first mentioned it. Said, well, I don't know why. Are you kidding me? This is 1982. So we go to our meeting, and if, I, and if I'm correct, and you guys can do your homework, I think there was 12 teams at the time. And I'm the governor for the Oshawa Generals, even though I'm not the owner. So this concept is presented where you're going to lose your stars for a month. Never heard of before. Teams and some guys, like the one year when I had Tanti and Andra Chuck and Sorella and Sadorkovich and Schmidt all played in the NHL on one team. Uh, you know, so, and there's a number of others. I think we had about eight guys on the team that played in the NHL. So, uh, anyway, uh, we're sitting in the room and they, this concept presented. They're going around the room, they come to me. The guys were saying, my players aren't going. We're not presenting. And it was highly emotional. And they're saying to me, uh, they said, who's, so are your players going? They come to me. I said, yeah, my players are going. And it erupted. Like guys were three feet from my face calling me, you know, traitor. And you're not even an owner. You can't make decisions. It's like, it was highly emotional. And they went around their room again. And they came to me again. And I said, you're damn right, my players are going. And I stood up, packed my stuff, and I said, and I looked at one of the owners. And I pointed at him just like I'm demonstrating to you. And I said, if your son had a chance to play for Canada's national team, would you let him go? Death silence in the room. I grabbed my bag and said, I'm out of here. We walked out of the room. And we ended up agreeing to do it. Who was the owner? Pardon? Who was uh, the owner? I just, I could tell you. That's, <laughs> a good, that's, that's what a good journalist is about. You've stepped up. But, I mean, he's still, he's still alive. And I hear he's quite ill right now. I try to get in touch with him. But I remember him right within two, three feet of my face screaming at me. And uh, can you imagine if we weren't part of it? Can you imagine that, you know, what this, you know, I don't have to tell you guys. You guys are, you know, talk about it, discuss it, dissect it. 
And uh, so then they named me part of the management team. <laughs> and we hadn't been in the medals for years. We hadn't been in the medals for years, guys. You know, because we sent teams over. Mm-hmm. And one team we sent Peterborough Pizza, we fortified it with Lance and Cicerelli and stuff. And got beat. But anyway, and I went over as a delegate. So now, which leads me to the point that when Mike introduced that question, I hope I'm not going on too far here, but I'm trying to, you guys are such good guys. So now we go to Minnesota. First time we got our national team. And I remember we had a training camp in Winnipeg. And uh, Minneapolis was hosting them at the old Met. But Winnipeg paid money to play three games here in Winnipeg. Okay? Uh, and so, you guys, so now we're there. Our goal is to get a medal. But because we were last, we had to, it was round robin, strictly round robin in those days. Seven games you played. Because we were last, we had to play the top teams right off the bat. Finland, Sweden, and uh, Russia. And there's a lot of immigrants from territories that Russia controlled. A lot of immigrants came in the 20s and 30s and 40s. So we end up beating the Finns, beating the Russians. I remember we ran their goalie because he'd come out and play it in the corners. And I asked if he was fair play. Troy Murray was one of the best captains we ever had. I've ever been around. I've had a lot of good ones all. He was one of the best. I also got to talk about Mike Richards for your team. They beat us in another question. But anyway, so we go in there. We nail their goalie and score in the empty net. They go screaming. But the referees say, I mean, didn't really hit him, just rubbed him out. So now we got to play the Russians, who not only hadn't been beaten, had never been behind in international competition. And everybody talked about what a great team they were. So my whole uh, my whole goal was uh, I didn't want to hear their national anthem. So they always play. So I went to the players and said, I'm so sick of their national anthem. I can't stand listening to it. I respect anybody's, but I don't want to listen to it. Anyway, I think we beat them 6-0. I remember people in the stands crying. And with two minutes to go in the game, the guys are all yelling in the match. We ain't going to hear that Russian national anthem tonight. We ain't going to hear that Russian national anthem tonight. <laughs> and so here's a great story you guys are like. The day before, we were playing on Saturday afternoon in, in Winnipeg. And we had to play the Americans with Van Beesbrook in the net. Sunday night. And we were taking a bus. Because they never thought, you know. So I went to Bob Strum. We were both sharing the management. And I said, we got to change this thing. So we went over and talked. I, and I went to the vice president of the CHA. He said, you can't be taking a bus. We won these first two games. You know, we're, we're in the running here. And he said, and we never had coats. Like, no. You need three suitcases with all the stuff they get. 
we got a blazer. We got a blazer. Because we had to cut bellows because the doctors wouldn't get clearing, give him a good clearing for that day. Because he was he, he was injured. Couldn't guarantee us that he'd be healthy. And you had to name your team, and that's your team. And you name it 24 hours. I remember that like it was yesterday. So we go over there and find out that, we, that they'll take this DC-3 or whatever it is. In those days, can you imagine? It was 3000 bucks. And give us a box lunch. So Bob got him down because we got, he said, look. So I go back to the CHA and said, we're not busting. Uh, he said, well, you better find whatever, $2,600 or whatever it was. The guy did it for Canada. Because that's what it costs. And if you're getting on the bus, I'm going to the airport. So he agreed to it. So now we beat them. We didn't think we'd beat them like this. Everybody said, oh, how they're such a team. You should have seen when they were behind in the third period, fighting with each other, yelling at each other, you know, because it always won so easily. Of course, here. So we go in there. We, the Americans, they got about 13,000 in there, all with American flags and stuff. And Beesbrook in the net. I think if you look up the stats, if I can still remember, they'll shoot them 18 to 4 and we're behind 2 nothing. Ben Beekman, man, Beesbrook stands on his head. Stands on his head. We end up winning 5-4. And they hit the goalpost of the crossbar. Talk about inches. No, we're undefeated. And then one of the biggest problems in a round robin is you'd play a couple of teams then that really weren't very, very good, and you have to play them. Like, they're not a country anymore, like Zaire or somebody would have a team there, whoever. You know, and I don't mean that demeaningly, but I mean they just didn't have a program in hockey. And you win those games so easily, you're worried about them. Because the final game was against the Czech, Czechs when there was all one country. Guess what? We win the other two games. We go in there. All we need is a tie. All we And I'm also on the bench. And we play the checks. The arena. You guys don't have an arena with such little capacity where we're playing 90 minutes out of town. Because they had the Swedes playing the Russians at the Met because that's who they thought would be playing for the gold medal. You know, one payphone. Now we're playing for the gold medal. A whole bunch of press show up. No cell phones. No smell phones. So they got to pay. So they decide to strings put in like two or three other payphones for people so they can file their stories. We are ahead. So, oh, this is the story you guys are like. So I go to, I go to, uh, I go to uh, Bob Strum and said, you think we can get a gold medal before the game? Because they had them all out there in a case, security. So we get off the bus. Strum says, come on, go and see the guy. Is there any possibility we can get to borrow one of these gold medals? He said, no, can't put this. Strum says to him, you want the bloody Russians to win the gold medal? Because that was height of Cold War then, U.S. and Russia. 
Like the bloody Russians are in this? That's what he said. Not uh, bloody sounds demeaning, but he, you know, you can't lend us this for 10, 15 minutes then? Guy looks around, grabs one out of the case, gives it to me. I go in the dressing room. This is after warm up. And I look at these guys, and you guys, and I said, yeah, I'm waiting now because that was part of my job to talk to the team and stuff like that. And the other rule we had them when guys came back with different things they wanted corrected, had to narrow it down to three things. Because the coach can't be telling them eight things to do. Three main things that we better watch for. So I, we're all sitting there, and now, it's, now we got an honest chance to go medal. And the checks were formidable bonus. They had due to check in those guys. So anyway, I got the tension of the room. So I said, how many of you guys have won a league championship for football? How many of you guys have won a provincial championship? A couple hands ago. How many of you guys have won a national championship? I think one guy really won a national championship. So it may have been a midget or something. How many of you guys have won a world championship? Death silence. As I said that, I took the gold medal out of my pocket. And I said, this is what you get if you were to win a world championship. And I said, if we don't win this game for the rest of your life, you can tell everybody you were 60 minutes away from winning a gold medal in the world championships. And I go to take it in front of them. And one guy was going to touch it. I said, don't, you can't touch it. You can't touch it until you own it. You want to touch it, you own one it. Put it on. We come flying out of there. <laughs> we scored two goals. In the, uh, and anyway, it ends up, and I'll never forget this. There's a couple of anecdotes. I hope I'm not going too long and stuff. But anyway, uh, it's 3-3 tie with, uh, 19, I don't know, 19, 20 seconds to go. Habshide's on the ice taking the face off. He loses the face-up, and they get three scoring chances in 10 seconds before our goalie freezes the puck. And I yell over at Dave King. I said, put Troy Murray out there. He'll win this thing. Like, Because I remember Habshite said, thanks for getting me out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Troy Murray wins it. I still remember the puck going behind the net. Wins it into the corner. Buzzer goes. We win the gold medal. Because they weren't prepared, they didn't even have the national anthem there. Because if you look at the clips, the guys line up on the blue line, go side by side, just saying, oh, Canada. And I remember the CBC color guy or something had tears running down his face while those guys are singing. And we have to go back to Minneapolis. They're having a banquet that night to give out all the awards and stuff. But, like, we're in the dressing room. This is just a local little rink. Got no seating. Like, you had to understand it where we were. So the best part of this story of all the things that happened and all the emotion, gold medal. And, and <clears throat> as we're leaving the rink to get on the bus about an hour and a half later, because of all the hoopla, one of the 
one of the Samboni guys that works at the rink, who brought his lunch in a brown paper bag, ripped a sheet off, piece off with that, and says as we're coming out, some guy by the name of Trudeau from Canada called you guys. Had no idea who he was. Our prime minister, no idea who he was. This is an hour and a half. He called at the end of the game. Some, and he had a phone number to call. We called it back, and there was nobody there then. And we got on the bus, went back to the banquet, and flew out the next morning with Goldman. You mentioned, you mentioned the name Mike Richards. Uh, oh. Obviously, you would have gained that respect for him as an opponent. He and Kitchener, you at the time in Erie. Why did he leave such an impression? Oh, my God. He's one of the best leaders. Because I can tell you exactly the story. They won. They played us in the first round. First games in Kitchener. We win in overtime. Come back to our place, we win. So we used to go 1-1-1-1. One, 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 one. Jeez. We're still a win here or something like that. This is going to be a big upset. Kitchener beats us in overtime. Mike Richard scores the goal. Was so dominant, you have no idea in that game. I thought they dressed five Richards. <laughs> Every time I looked up, he was either giving the puck up or getting the puck. I mean, you had to see the way he played the game with his heart and soul. Back and beat us, go in there. He was responsible. He was involved totally in every single game. He created the wins. He put that team on his back, and they beat us in six games, beat us four straight. And that leaves an image. I have so much respect for that guy, for what he was about, and what he was as a person. You know, I always tell my players it's people who win championships. There's a difference between assembling talent and assembling a team. Much different to put that team together. And, you know, think about it. And so what this guy did, and I knew right away, is John Stevens was also one of my best captains ever. I had a number of them. Who was coaching in L.A., and he was a head coach in, in Philadelphia. And when they traded for Richards, there was other people in that trade. I'm just trying to remember. I said, this guy knows about it. And he was a major contributor in L.A., a leader for them to win Stanley Cups. Like, he was more than just a player. And when you find that out in a person and as a competitor, you could see it. He literally took that team over, said, get on my back. We're going to win this series. And he did. And it's not bragging if you're if you can do it. <laughs> we'll and get so to never so. what he did anyway. He wasn't that kind of a guy. And he was the key guy. Key, there was a few a number of other guys in that team that were a big part. He was one of the leaders for them to go on and win it. I mean, he he made such an impression on me, like and I said to him, he scored that overtime goal to make the series two one coming back. This guy's said We've had enough. I told her, this guy is going to do it. We, if we don't control Mike Richards, we're not going to win. And it was exactly true. And I'll never forget it. And because people like that make an impression on you. And I don't care what anybody has to say. 
And Mike Richards, I know, I'd have him play for me any day of the week. We'll get to some of the leaders you had in Erie because Lord knows you had plenty there. But I want to ask you one question. The Eric Lindros trade from Quebec to Philly, he was almost a ranger. And I, th- I remember reading at one point, um, this is years back, I remember reading that you had something to do with this trade or somebody called you or something. What's the story behind your interaction with the Lindros trade? Well, I traded Eric twice. I was in, I, I, they brought me in to quarterback that trade, Quebec, and be the assistant manager in hockey operations. And Pierre Paget and I became the best of friends. Pierre Paget was general manager coach, but he just wanted to coach and have control. He gave me a way more power than I should have got the first year with them. So anyway, I traded him in junior. Mm-hmm. I didn't draft him. And, and then when we traded him in junior, there's all kinds because, you know, they had different ideas when they said about schooling that. They wanted him close to home where they could watch him. I had no problem with it. I went to their house. I had no problem with treating your son. The key term is fair equity. And I determine what the fair equity is. We, as an organization, my leadership, not anybody else. So I sent a deal out to all the teams. Anybody want to trade for Eric? And their offers had to come to the league office in writing. Because I didn't want someone saying, oh, I made a better deal. They're all stamped by the league office. And I would negotiate with the top five, four or five or six, the ones that were in I remember the guys that were in the running. Uh, Belleville, Kingston, Oshawa, um, Hamilton. There's one other team. Anyway, uh, and then I negotiated with them. And everybody thought I just left Oshawa Generals and didn't. I knew the players in Oshawa. So he ended up, and he almost went to Belleville, but they wouldn't. I didn't, there had to be a good young goalie in the deal. Because to have a decent team and build it and have to find a goalie, that's problems in River City. So we wanted that goalie out of, their young goalie out of Belleville, they wouldn't give money. But Oshawa would give us Leonard Uzi. But I knew all the players there. I knew the Denimi kid who I think was from Kitchener. He was. Yeah. That we got in Oshawa. Just, I just loved him. What a spirited. Oh, my God. I loved him as a player. But I knew all the players. It was part of drafting them. I knew their backgrounds. So we ended up getting six players. First pick of their overage next year, which we got Basilo. Got some decent, good cash and two second round picks. And it was the meat. So now we're at the Memorial Cup and stuff like that. Pierre Paget is there. So now they got one. We end up winning the Memorial Cup. So Paget calls me and said, hey, Mr. Obu doesn't really want to trade him, but I think we got to study it. And I'm, on, I'm, I'm traveling or something like that. And I still have been in Quebec City, just, just meet Pierre. And he said, what about coming here as an assistant manager? And, and quarterback the trade for Linders. So, you know, 
we talked about it. All of a sudden, I get a call. He said, can you fly in? There's a ticket for you. Can you fly in and uh, meet Mr. Obu? And I remember it was a Friday. And uh, so I flew in there, and I was meeting him in the afternoon. And I went to Mr. Obu had an office the size of your rink. It's such a big office. But anyway, he was sitting on a chair eating a grapefruit with his foot up. I remember this in detail. And I walk in, they send me in to see him. And he looks up at me and shouts, very, very welcoming. What happened if I tell you I don't want to trade Lindros? I said, well, what happens if I tell you you could get players, draft choices, and money? And he said, I like the money part. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, but I mean, this is going to take, you're going to have to go through every team, their farm teams. This, this is a big project. This isn't something. So, and because like Pittsburgh had players and draft choices, but no money. Toronto had draft choices and money, but not the players we wanted. So you had to identify the teams that had all of them. I think it came, even though the, I, I, there was a podcast that said there's 20 offers. That's like, you know, there were nibbles, but they weren't very in it. There was really like five or six. And as you put it, so we get down to it, and we've identified New York, Philadelphia, Montreal, we had to get Patrick Wall if we were going to go to Montreal and to have him there. I mean, Vancouver, and I think Chicago, maybe LA too at the time. I'm not sure. So, this is what's going to happen. This is what we want. These are the players we want. Mr. Obu is going to do it. But we had the defined players that had to be part of it, not to agree. We had to have their first round picks, and there had to be cash. You guys will like this story, too. So then we find out that he's kind of made a deal with both teams, Philly and New York. But then when it went to arbitration, the way it was worded, and we made the deal with Philadelphia. So now, Bobby Clark, who I watched play for the Flint Blonde Bombers, so far we go back, who's a really good guy and highly competitive. We know about his career. So we make the deal, and I remember we're having this get-together. These five players we got, we got 15 million U.S. dollars in those days. And the dollar was 71 cents. <coughs> Two first-round picks. So everybody's up clanking wine glasses and about 20 people in the room there at the back after it's finalized. I'm looking to sing. I'm looking at the paperwork. I'm looking at Philadelphia. They don't have two first-round picks the next two years. They're missing one. I said, hey. And I tell the guys, what the hell is going on here? Well, I call Bobby Clark. And Bobby's so mad at me. He's yelling at me and swearing at me. And I said, 
Carty, give me, let me make one statement. If I was working for you, would you want me to thoroughly look at this? I'm not interested in your first round pick three years from now. I'll be gone, likely. The deal was first round pick the next two years in a row. So they go to arbitration and they, uh, Philadelphia, if I remember correctly, was allowed to protect five players and then we could pick a player from anyone else. So I told uh, the guys, look, these people like to spread rumors. So you call St. Louis or whoever, I'm not picking any team, and ask them what they think of whoever on Philadelphia. But none of those guys were the guys we were interested in. Because we know they're going to call Philadelphia and say, go back, call us about this guy. So we had more rumors going around about guys that we might want that we weren't interested in. We wanted Chris Sutton. He played for me and he'd come around, quit drinking and all those sort of things. And we needed, because we had Forsberg and Sackick and Sundin after that trade. Forsberg, Sackick, Sundin, and Reach were our four centermen. In those days, decent, yeah. And you had to have guys that make sure we could take care of things. And we ended up getting Chris Simon, so we ended up with six players. The, the two first drops separated in fifteen million U.S. cash, and that's that's in question for that. And two years later, won the Stanley Cup. So you, that that fir- that first deal you orchestrated for Eric is of course when you're in the Sioux you make the deal with Oshawa and we touched on his name earlier but I'd like to go just a little bit deeper on Ted Nolan the success he had at junior the success he had beyond and of course blackballed to this day what can you tell us about Ted well here's the deal I told Ted I used to tell assistant coaches you're not going to be the head coach here unless the head coach dies or goes to a better job. The assistant coach's job is to support the deficiencies of the head coach, not take advantage of it. So once I got to know Teddy, he was a real player's coach. Boy, the players loved him. And he could pick out personalities. He had, a, he had an understanding. And all those people wanted him fired and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I don't have proof about the prejudice that I thought was there, but you could certainly su- suggest that was part. So then I knew that he needed it. He was a player's coach, but he needed to learn the game technically. So Danny Flynn just got fired from Belleville. And I called him up. And he was the head of technical hockey for Nova Scotia before. He knew the X's and O's upside down and backwards. And I liked the way he coached. I thought it was an unfair fire. So I called him. Come up here and be the associate coach and assistant general manager. My theory was we don't have enough money. Let's give him a lot of titles. (laughs) (laughs) 
And I said, Danny could be a stepping stone. He was unbelievable. He put the power play and the shorthanded together. He And Teddy became much better technically. And Danny Flynn became a better players coach. And they really melded together. And then we had a midget coach up there, Zook, who nobody was using, used to keep winning championships all the time. And we brought his mind in there too. Because I believe in all those people that can contribute. I don't care who you are. I was one of the first guys in Oshawa to hire a goalie coach and stuff. So, and then Teddy, we went to three Memorial Cups in a row. Then Teddy got these opportunities. And uh, Buffalo called me. And they met with me for at least two or three hours, their president and everybody. As a matter of fact, the president said, I'm not looking. Told his wife, I was standing beside her at a game, said, you thank the guy you're standing beside. You got the job because Sherry convinced us. It's not. And it turned out, and it's really sad. I don't know how much of a contribution Teddy is to this, but this guy, as long as you give him the right assistance and the right support, Mike asked the question. He's a he's a coach because he can he knows guys, you know. That uh, they uh, and, and and some of the things he'll put to the players. Like we had a guy on our team who was a top scoring player in Sioux, and he'd shoot the puck high all the time in practice and give it to him. We're in playing the Kitchener Rangers, and like we're both vying for a top spot. This player fires the puck in warm up and hits the goalie in the mask. Came in after, didn't make a big deal, and take your stuff off. One of our top left winners. Said, we've been on you all the time, but not shooting that puck iron balls. Didn't dress him for the game. Because he and did it very quietly, no big deal, no screaming. Take your stuff off, you're not playing. And I'm standing beside the kid during the game. So this is a lesson I had to learn. So those are the qualities that he had to get the players. You know, he's got, he's working. I used to meet with him. He's working with the power play in Buffalo. He said, you guys have kids? They all said, yeah. He said, you know the book, Find Waldo? When we got the power play and we got five and they got four, find Waldo. (laughs) (laughs) That's what he said. The guys are all laughing and banging their sticks and stuff like that. So, he, you know, he knew how to get to that. Sure, you spent uh, the last leg of your career south of the border in Erie. How much did that city change as a hockey town from when you first came in in 96 to when you left in 15? It's unbelievable. I'll never forget when we first got there, you know what I mean? Especially, and you guys know what, but you guys played at home on Fridays. But on a Friday night for high school football, where they get when the two top teams played, they get ten thousand people, and there'd be like ten or twelve high school football games going on. You know, you know we wouldn't have enough for a bridge tournament on a Friday night. <laughs> and uh, so, anyway, it's amazing though, and it, the lot of promotions and how we got, and then when we got Brad Boys in those games. It was on Terry Hockey League player two years ago. 
academic player in Canada for one of those years, you know, and uh, we put the, the, the good, see, I always had a theory, because I'm going to get into this when you ask about McDavid. Ooh. If I was a seventh place <laughs> team, I wasn't, it didn't bug me that if we could make adjustments and I could get the right future that we didn't make. The, I used to hear these guys, we made the playoffs 13 years in a row. Never been past the second round. Like, what's that? That was me. That was my philosophy. My philosophy wasn't 13 games and I'm going to get a play. I was, not, I was not concerned about moving players. If I could look in the future and say, wait till Brad Boyce is 18 years old. Okay. Wait till Corey Pecker, you get two years out of him, 55 goal scorer. This, you know, Coley Akavo when he's 17, 18 was a defenseman. Where are these guys? And having the right goal. Because my theory about goaltending, goaltending 75%. When you don't have it, it's 100. <laughs> so, so, you know, and I started looking. I said, hey, these guys are all young. We're going to play the hell out of them. We go into Kitchener where they have two real good lines. We're going to get killed. But we're not changing that. We're not bringing a couple of guys in to change that just to make the playoffs. If I thought it was realistic, we could be pretty good and, and get a run for the roses with this team. Now, we started this, but and they tailgate there. They go to the baseball field and tailgate. Get a thousand of them in there for two, three hours before the game. You know, uh, they get into the sauce. Like, they're like 3,000 people when they get in the game. And if you're not wearing our jersey, they don't like you no matter who you are. You could be Moses. <laughs> they didn't like you because you didn't have our jersey on. And our glass, if you guys remember, Mike, too, our glass was, you'd knock a guy in the glass with flail and stuff, which I didn't mind because that real hard glass with concrete, you'd run a guy, could get injured. So they'd see that. And my God, that, that, that crew, on a Saturday night, when we play the Rangers or whoever, London, we get some good crowds in there and they get going. And when we started winning, then they wanted to be part of it. And our, our prices were realistic, which they had to be in American money. So, um, and then when boys and those guys, and we went to the Memorial Cup, and, I mean, they had a parade in town, fire trucks and everything else, just for winning the OHL championship. And there was four, five, uh, at least 3,000 people at the park. You know, so it just got to be part of it. And then, the uh, story, so, so we had a nucleus there. 2,000 people that just loved the team. And in there, you had to put like, uh, we had um, Shriners Hospital for challenged, physically challenged people and kids. And if you were in university, you had to be going to school taking something in those days because I demanded it. Because we weren't, my theory was we weren't going to have hockey ones after high school. If you didn't have university classes, because high school kids didn't go, the guys, we would go to the Shriners Hospital for outpatient 
morning on Thursday mornings. And we play all those kids floor hockey. We never won one floor hockey game. Couldn't beat them. But that was, that was, and then we'd give stuff out, you know, autograph stuff to them. And so our kids were part of the community, got to be, you know, all kinds of promotions that we'd have. They'd go and do those things. That would be part of their monthly calendar. So for a real core of people, we became, and then McDavid comes on. Like, not only did he fill our rate, but he filled everybody's rate. <laughs> you know, but that's a story in itself that we should talk about, too, because I had to make some, and we had some trouble for a few years, and I take total blame. We didn't, we weren't very good for a few years, and specifically, I was the cause. I had a daughter that was very, very seriously ill. She had aggressive Crohn's, a lot of major surgeries. She's in intensive care for 13 days. And I was spent all my life and I, she would fly in for a week or two. We used to take a car to the airport and she, our planes would pass. And I should have delegated a lot more. And I wasn't, I, I really discovered a lot because I flew home from one day and I looked at myself and uh, so uh, I said, this is not right. And I talked to my wife about it this by not doing the right things, we suffered for a few years with future prospects. And I drove to Erie Monday after flying back and called a meeting. I said, the sheriff's back in town. We're going to go about this. We're going to have people, hire people, delegate things, and we're going to organize this so we can be a competitive team. And uh, so we had our ups and downs. And then uh, as you ask how the people... I remember when we were playing Barry for, to win the OHL and the owner of Barry at the time came to me when our rink was just jammed, that old rink. <laughs> they were hanging from rafters and, you know, the fire department turned their, you know, turned their heads. And he came to me and he said, Sherry, when you first came here, I thought I'd never work and I see this. And you know how crazy those fans would get. And we'd have a little band in there from a high school to get them going and, I remember when we were playing Barry, the fifth, we ended up winning the game to win it. When the, when the team came back on the ice, they were cheering so loud and so long that you know how you announce, the announcers will announce things and then start putting near it. And the only way we could get everybody to shut up was to play the national anthem. <laughs> it was so loud, it was so loud to that. And that's when their owner came to me and said, I haven't seen this. Said. And then, fortunately, a guy like McDavid came along and we find a guy like Debrinkit and, uh, you know, Strom, a number of other guys. And uh, they ended up, last year I wasn't there, but they set a junior record. Four years in a row, 50 wins out of 68. You know, it's the first time it's ever been done in junior hockey. And, uh, and so, you know, I don't know if I'm going too long here with you guys and I don't, you guys are such good guys. I don't take advantage of you, but that the McDavid thing is, it's a real story. Okay. Let's, uh, and it has to be told, obviously I'm going to, I'm going to leave that one for Chris, not to set that up because you mentioned another name, Sherry, that I, I think we need to learn a little bit more about, and that's to 
because here's a guy that I could see eye to eye with in a rink. And that's not saying much because I'm five foot and a little bit. Yeah. You, you, you find him late and he gets to the league and everybody says, ah, he's too small. He's not going to score like you did when you found him. And everybody said the same thing in the NHL. And all he does is score goals. How did you find Alex? And, and everybody said, wait till McDavid leaves. And he had, he'll never be in anything. Matter of fact, in your area somewhere, somebody wrote a column about that or didn't do a column about that, but mention it. We'll see how good he is when McDavid leaves. And then he got 51 and 55 two years in a row. <laughs> don't make it. You know, so anyway, here's the story. I drive, go up Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. And one of our prospects, I can see, I can go up there and see one of our prospects there, one of our prospects that was playing in that uh, in the Northern League there. And I had a chance on a weekend to see both these prospects. So I got to the suit with our chief scout, Hal Penny, who's a hell of a scout and a really good person. So we go over and uh, Friday night, they're playing in Sioux, Michigan. And you guys, I don't wear socks. I, think you know, I wear loafers and don't wear socks in the winter. And, well, I think how dumb it is. Put socks on, then you got to take them off at night. <laughs> Why would a guy waste all that energy? So I've worn socks for, except when I put my runners on and stuff like that, or pair of skates on. But anyway, I know I don't worry really wear them in there. But anyway, we go up there. It's snowing. It's cold. It's, and I say to our guys, like I'm in the in the car when we pull into the parking lot in Sioux, Michigan. I said, this prospect of ours better be a good player. He'd be up here in this weather. And the stop, I said, I'll be all over you guys like a blanket. So I get out of the car, no socks on. It's my shoes and stuff like that. And I'm not totally dressed for it. I should have been. Grew up in Northern Saskatchewan. So we get out going the rink. Team is from a private high school in it's the under 18 program that they have in the States. High school team from uh, Chicago. So I knew the coach. He played for Lake State when we had the good teams in the suit. He had a cup of coffee with the good guy. I said, you got any prospects here? Just before the game, because I know we're really going to, we're up to watch Sioux Michigan play with our prospect. So I got this kid that's going on a scholarship to Massachusetts University of Mass. So yeah, I look at him. Five, seven, just to show you about, like you and I talk and everybody talks about, you know, and we're both not very big. So, so I, Say to my guys, typical college prospect, 5'7", to show you how stupid I could be and shoot my mouth off the wrong time. So we go up in the stand sitting there, and I was upset about the prospect coaching his coach in the team. He smoking a cigarette. His running shoes were dirty and he had ashes all over. You know, I... I'm not condemning him, and God bless him, he's a good guy, but I have a 
certain code of ethics. I expect that you're going to be around young kids. But you have to demonstrate if you're their coach manager. So I'm, I'm talking to our staff about this. I said, you get up in the stands, out comes this high school team, and the brink gets on it. He comes down, does one-two on the defenseman, goes around him, one-two on the goalie, how's your mama, and puts it in the under the <laughs> grass bar. Oh, I watched the game. Debrinket plays left wing, right wing, center. On the defense, on the power play, gets three goals to assist. Nobody in the rink. Nobody in the rink. So this is, it's good that you asked about this. So holy moly. I said, and I say to our people, Where's this guy? He was from Detroit here. We knew about him. We knew about him. Like, did any? Like, are my eyes? Like, do I have to go to an optometrist? <laughs> okay? So, 20-minute periods, guys. <coughs> Three 20-minute periods. And they're playing the next morning at 10 o'clock. So, we go home. We go back to the hotel where we're staying at, get up. Don't get up in time much to at least maybe have a cup of coffee or something or a cup of tea. We take with us go to the rink. Nobody in the rink. And they're playing. And he's upstairs. So at the end of the game, the guys say to me, where are we going to have breakfast and stuff? Or lunch? I said, I'm going to that to bring his dressing room. I'm having lunch with him. <laughs> Let's get that straight. I said, oh, you can't do that. You can't do it. Ten hours from home. Are you kidding me? I can't do it. I come all the way up here. We got this kind of guy. So I'm still a pen and paper guy, too. I still like to write things down. And keep me. So I go to the coach, ask if I can meet with him. He said, absolutely. So we come out and he's a wonderful young man. I said, listen, what are you thinking of doing? Because I knew it. He said, how do you feel about playing in the OHL with Connor McDavid? <laughs> I had more guys coming to Erie to play with Connor McDavid you could ever believe. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I knew he could. He said, I think about it. Oh, Give me your phone. I got the program there. I get his phone number, get everything. To show you about playing, they played Friday night, 20-minute periods, Saturday morning, and they had to get going because they were playing in Wisconsin a game Saturday night. And so I get a hold of them. And I want to meet his parents. Monday morning, Jeff Jackson, who's a partner with Bobby Orr, calls me in the morning to show you how small a world you guys will enjoy this and says to me um, says to me uh, what do you think of Dabrinkit? I said Jeff you wouldn't know Dabrinkit if he stood in front of you. He said well I got a friend whose son plays on that high school team and saw you talking to Dabrinkit. <laughs> all the world is. Okay. Make a long story short, 
we meet with the parents two and a half hours in a coffee shop, and he commits to us. But we can't announce it because he's not in the draft. But you have to invite him to camp, and you don't get the invitations to invite him to camp until after the draft. And then Herbie doesn't send me the paperwork. <laughs> and I had more things to say to him than you could imagine. I want to apologize to him for <laughs> what I was saying to him. Finally, they get the stuff to us. We Then we got to send it to Chicago. We got to have him sign it, overnight it. Then we can put him on our roster to sign it, to invite him to camp. And once he's invited to our camp, we can sign it. And that's how we got it. And that's, um, that's a great story. And I had two NHL guys, I won't mention them, you know, I know you were going to ask me names, who told me to never play in the NHL. And I, I never talked to Coach Selwood. If I was recommending you, Chris, or somebody, I just tell him about you as a person. So you guys have seen him. Your people have seen him play 15 times. If you don't know whether he can skate. So when they told me I'll never play it. So you like this story. He went to Chicago and scoring all those goals. And it was Christmas time. And I ran into one of those guys that I'm a friend with. I said, can't find a break. I looked through every American League team, every Eastern League team. And I can't find him. Where is he? Well, I can't, I can't tell you on the air what he said because it was pretty descriptive. <laughs> so I'm sorry that I kept you guys this long. I didn't mean to do that. Listen, this, this podcast is called OHL Stories. And I can't believe it's taken us this long to get Sherry Basson telling stories on this podcast. <laughs> we, I, I guarantee Firewall and I at least have three more questions we need you to answer. And at least three more stories. And we haven't even brought up the guy who you just talked about. In Connor McDavid, maybe the easiest recruiting job of your career, just show highlight films of 97 skating around that rink. But the late, great Dale Howarchuk, he had the famous quote compared to McDavid, said he skates like Bobby Orr, he's got vision like Gretzky, and hands like Lemieux. Those are some big shoes, but in Erie, at least, and now in the NHL, he's filling those shoes. What did you see in your time from your good friend Connor McDavid? Well, it's funny because I have a story about Howard Chuck, too, that's too bad we can't. He's a personal friend of mine because he's from Oshawa at the Oshawa Generals. You can tell that one, too. And got drafted. I'll tell you that. I want to talk about that later. But that's a heck of a story about Howard Chuck because I was the one then that, that made Cornwall. They were in the Quebec League, drafted in the Ontario League. We were, I went to Howard Chuck. They weren't going to let Howard Chuck play tier, uh, Junior B. Because the system says you had to said this guy's too good. Went to I got and I also was involved, directly involved, getting Mike Keen and I coached the junior B team here in Oshawa. He scores 33 goals in junior B, our job. And gets drafted. Cornwall, whatever points they got would come in and wherever they slotted in our league. And draft our job. Which means if Kitchener were drafted him or anything, he's never gonna play in our arena. I went ballistic. I was just, I went to Dave Branch. And, they, and I, was, I was the cornerstone of saying, these guys, if they're going to draft in our league, they're going to play in our league. They're going to play in Quebec. They're going to draft Quebec. And they made the decision to come to our league. And that's how I became friends with Howard Chuck. Because I met with his family. I knew his parents. And what a loss this guy was. This guy was a special guy. And, uh, yeah. But anyway... 
So now we got a team. Remember I told you before and um, uh, that this business about making the playoffs. So we had a team like he could have made eighth place, maybe seventh place if everything went, you know. And early October, they say that my staff says, you got to come and see McDaniel. And I had a dog, Newman, that everybody knew. Like everybody knew, he plaveled everywhere. Guest of the week at the Hilton for one week, because he traveled everywhere. So everybody knew Newman. And he'd come to the game for me. So I go to watch McDavid. First shift, he comes, gets the puppets. Another one of those one, two, how's your mama? Beats everybody. <laughs> he was 14, I think, at the time. What is he going to be 15 for a couple of months, if I remember correctly? Comes out for the second shift. I mean, if you were, if your eyesight wasn't good, you could just listen to him skate. So I'm sitting there not saying very much, like it's so obvious what this guy's about. So obvious. And I really liked his personality he gave there. Like he never said anything. Like he scored a few goals and stuff and they were ahead in the team. And he like didn't want to go to the bench and all that sort of stuff. But didn't want to huddle. Like went right back to center. Right? So I just liked all that stuff. Couldn't help it. Like. So there's an intermission, you know, in minor hockey between second and third period. So Scott said to me, what do you think of me do? What do I think of McDavid? <laughs> I said, my dog Newman, after two shifts, pulled the chain and said, we've seen enough, let's go home. <laughs> so I said, so after the game, I call over assistant manager and stuff, you know, I got some ideas here. I'm going to go to Erie tomorrow and I think you should come with me. So we go, and I've been thinking about this all night now. Thinking, if everything goes right for us, we mid seventh place, we're going to play one of the top teams, and we're going to be out in five games maximum. Like, what's that all about? So I sit down with everybody. I said, we had McKay who scored 49 goals. So he wants an opportunity to go play with him. We had an all-star defenseman who were aging. We had, you know, four or five, three or four really good juniors. So I think I'm going to trade them all. So what? So I think we're going to trade them. Well, I won't make the, what's this deal about making the playoffs? I don't know if we're going to get McDavid. We may not. But we're going to put ourselves in a position to maybe get him. And Robbie Fatorik, who's a really good guy and a good coach, said, well, you don't want to win. So that's not true. If you can win with all these young guys we get, and I want lots of draft choices, and I want them for the future. We don't need them next year. So I want to be in a position that this guy's pretty good. So we traded all those guys. And we ended up in last place. And that's what we got. <laughs> so... Those teams that went out in the first round or second round, they didn't get the prize we got. 
You're not saying you tanked, are you, Sherry? <laughs> we didn't. We didn't purposely lose games. We had a tough time winning with the roster we had. <laughs> and so, you know, I decided, hey, and it turned out that we got lucky. You know, you know, you know that. Uh, and I told Robbie and those guys, you guys aren't threatened here. And the, and what we can teach these young guys this year, you can come back and help us. And uh, and we were so young that we were we weren't going to be good the next year until we got people learned and people got into their second and third year. And uh, so he was, he was the cornerstone and he's such, and it got to be extent. And I'll tell you exactly about this guy. This guy's, you have to see the way this guy prepares himself in the summer during the, get to see how focused he is. He comes to my charity golf tournament. We're going to raise over a million bucks a year. It's for orthopedic research and arthritis, arthritis research. Because I've had three hips done on each side and both shoulders transplanted. So brings his own food, salad, chicken. And you got to see him what he, how he prepares in the summer. I mean, so now here's the best story about him that you guys will love. So we're playing in Guelph, packed, drink everywhere we went, it was packed. And it's not very nice out. It's storming, and his dad wasn't feeling great. So his dad left with a couple of minutes to go and his mom back and so forth. After the game, you know that lobby where you come out of your dressing room in Guelph? Jammed. And it's cool. you got to see the people outside. So I go back in and said, Mac, place is jammed up there. I said, we can take you out a back door. We'll get you on the bus. I don't have to worry about this. You know what he said to me? He said, no, Bass. I was a little boy once, too. And went out there for 45 minutes. And finally, I have to be the bad guy. Like, we're playing the next night. The team okay. boss is just sitting there waiting. Yeah, yeah the guys, and they, all the guys were just with their families. So they didn't care. You know, we haven't eaten our post-game meal yet and stuff like that. And like, and I come in, we got a bloody game. He's he's signing all the way out. And that's what he's about. Like this guy's, he's not, you know, obviously he's gifted, but he works at it. You got to see. Went to his house. It's 27 Celsius or 28 Celsius. They ring the doorbell. Garage door goes up. He's in his roller blades. When I tell you perspiring, you'd have thought he was hit with a bucket of water. And he goes up this one chute and comes down, fires a bucket. Goes up the side, the other side of his garage. It's his house. What are you doing? Like, he said, my shot's got to get better. All by himself, no TV cameras, nobody there. I said, Grudge Doors, like it's hot. Keep doing all that Grudge Door done. All by himself. He said to me, What else have I got to do? He said, All my friends are working. Why wouldn't I? It still takes time for me. <laughs> we text or something at least once a month and talk about things. Or talk on the phone. 
never forgot his roots. Still got his high school buddies. Like he, like I said about Mike Richards, this guy's a special guy. He's not only a talented player. It's not his fault either, right? It's not no, his I, fault. That's right. You remember that's right. <laughs> Good on you. So uh, anyway, you know, it's. There's a lot more things. I didn't mean to take this much time with you guys. You guys are such good guys. But um, this was, uh, you know, I got a million other things I could talk about in my career, but the game was good to me. I can't forget it. You know, I, I, I listen to your podcast with McKenzie. I remember when McKenzie started, Bob McKenzie. I was in your head coach and general managers in Bob McKenzie's house trying to recruit them. So, you know, and I, you know, I'm going to be 82 in August, but I walk three miles every day and I do all my stuff. And there's a lot of guys that, that look up the obituaries, hoping I'm in it, but uh, it hasn't, uh, hasn't been a happy moment for them yet. So I'm pleased. And I get to discuss with good people like you guys. Well, you make sure you hang in there for the sequel. We'll get you back again, Sherry. Sorry, Sherry. And I know we've taken a lot of your time. I just got to ask about one more player really, really quick. And I do this to fireball all the time. If you've got time, I've got time. <laughs> but my, my brother grew up, we grew up in Palmerston. And he played uh, Huron-Perth Lakers, AAA. He's a 91 birth. I'm sure you know exactly where I'm going with this right now, but a guy in the national hockey league, who's just coming off a Stanley cup a couple of years ago, he has the nickname, the factor. But when you drafted him as an Erie Otter, he was known as snook O'Reilly. What do you remember about Ryan O'Reilly and his training habits? Well, if you got two weeks, <laughs> <laughs> wow, this guy, is, this guy is so special to me. And I, I still in touch with him. We still tell each other we love each other. It's the same with McDavid, all the guys. Scrolling. This guy, when you talk about preparation, you have no idea what this guy's about. That's why when he left Buffalo and they said about his character, are you kidding me? You look up character in the dictionary, they got Snoop's picture, Ryan O'Reilly. This guy, when you, I mean, nobody understands he said his feet were slow, so he ran in water in a lake. Ran in a lake. He would work out. He would run these steps up the side of this cliff. Exactly what I was asked him. Like, with a clock for timing. <laughs> he would work out in the morning and then go to, and then do weights. And him and his brother. His brother, what was a seventh-round pick or, or ninth-round pick? Won the story with he had 87 assists, his brother, or something like that. 80 some assists. And so talk about competitive. Here's a story for you people that are gonna that follow you guys. After the workouts, we used to go in this room with these soft mattresses, two by four cross. And you walk up and down this two by four, a guy's at the end with a sand pail with 25 golf balls. And as you're walking up and down the board for your bounce, they throw you a golf ball, you gotta catch it, you gotta throw it back in the can. 
And the guy that gets the most in that pail wins the competition. And if you fall off the board, the game's over. The other guy wins. This is after working out all day. And then we skate at night, just all morning, I mean, in different, in demanding workouts. His father's really good at designing this and good mentally. I'm watching him do that. And Ryan loses one the first game, jumps off and hits the cinder brick wall and said, we're going again. And his brother just smiled. I mean, this guy, this guy is so special for what he is. I wasn't drafted till the second round. And I said, the 15 teams at that time or whatever it is at the end of the round will regret not picking up. And everybody set his feet. He went into Colorado. Actually, it was too good. Because he made him as an 18-year-old. And his own quiet, he said to me, I'm going to give it a shot. Sure. I think I got a shot if I prepare myself. Never said that publicly. Just said it to me very quietly when I was visiting. I mean, oh, my, I'm glad you asked about that. You guys, oh my God! Like he is, he is special, special. When he was playing AAA with my brother, their game plan whenever they were losing was just give Snook the puck. That was yeah. the coach's. That was the coach's directive. If you're losing, just give Snook the puck. That's your it. brother. Your brother have a lot to know about him and too good on him. Your brother's going to be a special guy then, because to play with it, it was just, it was this guy. Was just, he's a special guy to this day. When that bus accident humbled. I grew, I grew up 75 miles, oh, not even that, hour, a little bit over an hour away from that humble, an hour and a half maybe. I called Snoop, Ryan O'Reilly, Connor McDavid, and said, I think we should go out there. And you know what they both said in separate calls? Why don't we go? Get it done. And you should have seen those people there. Unbelievable. I mean, you guys really hit it on the head. That's why you two guys, the league is really lucky about how dedicated you guys are, how much you, how, how hard you work for this league to let us know. And, and good on you guys. So uh, let me shut this off. Well, that's why we call you, Sherry, because when people stick around to the end of this, they can hear one of the, one of the greats in this game talk about how, you know, we're trying to carry your lunch from now on. I just like the ringtone. I want to tell you guys something that uh, I want to tell you guys something right up to, that um, I've known you guys and I know we talk about pre- being prepared and dedicated. Nobody more so than you guys in what you do in your own. You guys should be proud of yourself because there's a difference between being liked and respected. Okay. A lot of people are you know, people used to say, Sherry, there's a lot of guys don't like you. Say, so line up and buy a ticket. <laughs> I'm not here to be like, if you can be both, great. If you can only be one, be respected. You guys should be proud of yourself. You're respected and liked and good on you guys. Sherry, we really appreciate this. It's, uh, it's great to get this kind of time with you. And, and thank you so much for doing it. Well, listen, thank you. It's a privilege and the very best. You guys keep punching, and hopefully we'll see each other.
I'm Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.